Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, uh, Wayne, for your generous remarks. And uh, yes, I did just get out of hospital. But lest you think that I've got something dangerously contagious, I had a knee replaced and uh, still supposed to be on crutches because it was only last month. But um, I thank God for a very quick recovery. And thank you again, students. Dr. Rowan felt if anybody starts bagging Avondale, you just tell them they haven't seen the students at worship because it has been a wonderful week for me. And I have to say to you students that uh, you're looking pretty good this morning. I've seen all uh, degrees of uh, dressing during the week and uh, it's nice to see you looking casual. But what makes you different this morning? It is the way you have dressed. Every single one of us, when we get dressed, we are consciously or unconsciously sending a message. And if you don't believe that, well, you'd be a fairly remarkable person. But every time we get dressed, the thought crosses our mind, am I suitably dressed for the occasion? Now... In the 1980s, during the Reagan era, uh, a new expression came into the English language. It was called power dressing. And when you power dressed, it was to engage a sense of dominance and confidence and professionalism. And so this morning, to have all of those, I have power dressed. And uh, I hope you are impressed. Uh, Blue, dark blue suit with a faint pinstripe. Have you seen my shoes this morning? <laughs> Highly polished shoes. Gold tie. I have to be about level five with power dressing. Unfortunately, my suit's not Italian. That brings me down to four. And my my shoes are fairly cheap, so perhaps I'm a three and a half. But if I was to take my coat off, and turn it inside out, and proceed to put it on, you would be horrified. You would be saying, the guy's out of his head, which is probably closer to the truth than you realize, because... <laughs> What do you see when I take my coat off? You see the seams. And you see the weaknesses in the coat. That if there was to be a tug of war involving my coat, it would give way at the seams first. Hence the expression, the seamy side. That's where it comes from. Am I all right? Good. Can't go on unless I'm back to level five. You see, there is that saying, clothes make the man. You feel much more confident when you are dressed for an occasion. About six years ago, I was up in Townsville for the camp and I was speaking to the, uh, to the teens. And on the uh, particular morning, I was sitting there in the <coughs> delegates' uh, 
room, I remember very clearly my mobile rang, <clears throat> and it was from uh, my office, and they said, uh, we've just got a message, and we can't quite work it out, but you might understand it, but we've just had a telephone call from the Prime Minister's office, and you have an appointment tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock with the Prime Minister, it was John Howard, and uh, I said, well, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I've only got uh, casual clothes and sneakers and I'm only up here to talk to the teens. They said, well, we've booked your ticket and it takes off at four o'clock this afternoon and you've got to be there. Well, I, I'll never forget because I was sitting opposite Dr. Barry Oliver who was about to put a spoonful of wheat picks in his mouth and he slowly put the spoon down and he said, did I just hear that side of the conversation correctly? I said, yes, I have an appointment with the Prime Minister tomorrow. Well, I looked perhaps calmer than I felt because I raced in. Have you ever tried to buy a nice suit in Townsville? <laughs> well, by that laugh, I'd say 99% of you don't come from Townsville. It's not a bad place. But it is a hot place. It is far north Queensland. They don't have David Jones. And I rocked up to the best shop in town, which happened to be Lowe's. <laughs> and finally, I got a suit. The coat fitted me just fine. I bought a long sleeve shirt and a tie and a pair of shoes. And, but the trousers were about... Six, seven belt holes too big for me around the waist. I had no choice. I got the biggest two safety pins that I could get. And I stood in front of the mirror in my room and I realized that if I bent it around behind and I pinned them in place and I wore the coat, no one was going to notice how obscene I looked with a pair of trousers that were far too big for me. Well, I got on the plane, I got down to Sydney. When you get an appointment to the, with the Prime Minister at 10 o'clock, I was pacing the streets at 8 o'clock. You don't miss a meeting. Taken into his office, and one of his assistants was talking to us. There was three of us who had an appointment with the Prime Minister, all heads of school systems. They said, well, uh, when you meet the Prime Minister... Don't refer to him as John, it's Prime Minister or Mr. Howard. And uh, my work involved representing the school system in Canberra, and I spent a lot of time there. And it has a half-life all of its own. You must dress to the nines. But he said, uh, the Prime Minister may be feeling relaxed this morning, and if he tells you to take your coat off... He take it off, and I thought I'd kill the guy first. <laughs> and I thought this could be the worst day of my life. Oh, I'm so grateful the Prime Minister was feeling somewhat formal that morning. And I was able to keep my coat. I would not have taken it off. I couldn't have taken it off and walked around trying to pretend nothing funny was happening behind me. You see, for the occasion, whether I liked it or not, the way I looked 
was pretty important. I can remember when my father died. We knew he was dying and I prepared for his funeral. I had the whole program written. All we had to do was to insert the date. And we, would decide, we decided that we would bury him in his favorite suit. It was a gorgeous suit given by a grateful patient. And it was the finest wool you could get. It was a beautiful suit. Silk shirt and the shoes and socks. And we decided we would bury him wearing his tie, uh, which indicated that he was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And uh, my father died, and about three days after the funeral, oh, we didn't dress him in his suit. It was dry cleaned, everything was in the cupboard. As so often happens with death, you just forget a lot of things. And we had a suit. I didn't have the heart to wear it. And so I bundled it up and I thought, I'll give it away. And I thought we can just put it in a clothes bin. I thought, no, it's too good for that. So I thought, I'll go to a shopping center and I'll sit there and I'll wait till somebody who looked like my dad's build comes along and I'll offer them a suit. And, yeah, you thought it was a bit strange, and so did I, and I, I lost my nerve. I got on the train, and I went down to Central Station in Sydney. And I still didn't really have a game plan, but I sat in the park. And it didn't take me long to realize that the Darrows, the homeless, stayed in that park. And as I was sitting on a bench with a bundle on my lap, a long stag as a man, and I looked at him and I thought, well, you're about dad's size. And he sat down on the end of the bench. He had a bottle in a paper bag. And uh, he offered me to have some. I said, oh, no thanks, uh, but how are you going and all the rest. And I looked at him. He was unkempt. He was disheveled. His clothes were rags. And my idea came. I said to him, would you like a new suit? Oh, yeah. Huh? I said, I've got one here for you. And derelicts don't ask why. He said, sure. And I said, it's a nice suit, and it's got a lovely shirt and socks and shoes and a tie. I didn't tell him the significance of the tie, and he said, oh, thanks, mate. And he, he wandered off to the, to the public toilet, and I thought, well, I'm going to hang about here and watch. You know, I couldn't believe what I saw 10 minutes later because in had shuffled a arrow, but out stepped a man with a spring to his step. He looked as smart as you could if you hadn't shaved for a couple of weeks. And his tie indicated to the whole world that he was a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. <laughs> And I went home feeling, feeling gruntled because I was so pleased and I thought, well, Dad would have seen the humor in that. I want to tell you a story about Joe and Michael. Joe loved dressing up. It meant everything to him. And Michael only had one suit, wore it all the time. Michael 
had something, though, that Joe didn't have. Because wherever Michael went, people just looked to him. They followed him. Joe, on the other hand, he was a dresser, but he could never get the popularity. He had come across Michael several times. And he was jealous of him. More than jealous. He was very jealous. Joe had gone into politics. And uh, that is one way of uh, making sure you wear nice suits all the time. And he became a member of parliament. And the parliament in that country had 71 seats. And as I've said to you several times during the week, I really need your imagination. 71 seats in a gorgeous building. In fact, it was called the Hall of the Polished Stones. And he probably came in as number 71. And when you became in as number 71 of that ruling body, you were given a suit. And as you moved up, when somebody died, and you became number 65, your suit was just a little bit better until you became, and Joe did, finally became number one. His suit, his clothing was so gorgeous that on ceremonial occasions, it took a team of people four hours to properly dress him. He looked that Splendid. Who was he? Joe? Well, his full name was Josepha Ben Caiaphas. And Michael is another name for Christ. And there was a lot of antipathy between them. And today was Joe's big day. It was the day of the big parade, the greatest festival the Passover Caiaphas had been appointed in the year 18 AD by the Roman authorities by someone called Valerian Praetus he probably met Christ on a number of occasions he would have been a junior priest when a 12 year old boy confounded the priests and the doctors of law with his logic and his knowledge of scripture I have no doubt that he was well aware of Jesus because Jesus entered the court of Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and the main cause of him getting to the top because Caiaphas looked better than he was bright. And he would have been there the day perhaps when Jesus kicked over the tables of the money changers. It would have upset him because Caiaphas received 15% of every transaction in the courtyard of Annas. You know, Caiaphas features very, very strongly in the life of Jesus and in the early church. He tried desperately to stamp it out. He persecuted Peter and John stood before him in trial. He was responsible for the death of Stephen. He was the one who would have commissioned Saul to go to Damascus to stamp out the bushfires of Christianity. They didn't even have it a name. The name Christian hadn't been developed from the word Christ. It was simply being called the way. And today was the big occasion 
There were 400,000 visitors in the city of Jerusalem apart from the local inhabitants. And how's your imagination? First of all, he had to humble himself. He had to go across to the palace of Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And he had to collect his robes because Pilate used to keep it, just to keep the tabs. And he had to give him an assurance that the crowd would be controlled in the city. And then he would give him his clothes, he would take them, and then they would spend four hours dressing him. When he was finally dressed, he would stand in front of the mighty Nakana Gate, 30 meters tall. Some say it was made of solid gold and silver. Some say it was plated. It was 30 centimeters wide. And it took 20 soldiers on each side of the gate just to swing it. But before they opened the gate, Caiaphas, the high priest, number one in the Sanhedrin in the Hall of the Polished Stones, would stand there and he had a retinue. On a grand occasion like this, you wouldn't just walk by yourself. Listen to those who were with him. A hundred chief priests, 600 doctors of law, the scribes, 7,200 ordinary priests, and he was waiting in a small enclosure with railings of solid gold, and they looked to the top of the temple, and a trumpeter would appear, a long trumpet made of silver, and he would blow, and the gates would open, and behind those gates, when it was opened, was half a million people lining the streets to see the splendor of Caiaphas as they went out. And while all this was happening, Christ had eaten his last meal. The meal of a condemned man is usually what they want. But Christ wouldn't have had much of an appetite. At least today, a condemned man or woman would know that once they had that last meal and they were taken to the place of execution, it would be quick. Even under Jewish law, it was supposed to be quick with a stoning. But Christ knew that he was about to face the most barbaric, torturous death that had been devised by man. We have heard and contemplated the crucifixion so many times but if we were to see a real crucifixion, we would be horrified. Christ waited that. But before that, he had to face six trials, six unfair trials. Under Jewish law, when you were tried, one, you were never to be tried at night time because that was a time of darkness and the devil. You were to be tried in the full light of day where things could be transparent. If you were to be given a death sentence, you had to wait 24 hours and someone and the Sanhedrin would meet again to plead the case to see if they could be alive, left alive. None of this was done. There was no defense. You could not be condemned to death unless somebody spoke. 
And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 26. And I pick it up here. Such a sad story. From verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. That was the level of hatred. They couldn't find any, although many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest, Josepha ben Caiaphas, stands to his feet with all the dignity he had learned to muster. After all, he was number one in the hall of the polished stones, the chief of the Sanhedrin. And he said something that a priest was only allowed to say once in their career. It was called the solemn oath. It was so horrific. He said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, who had thus far been silent... Fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah that he would be as a lamb before her shearers. is quiet. Knew that it was his turn to speak. And in front of the hushed assembly, he looked at Caiaphas. And he said, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And at that moment, I just love the expression in the Zara of Ages, divinity flashed through humanity. And Caiaphas, looking at Jesus, knew he had just heard from the Son of God. But he hardened his heart and in his rage, he stood and he took his priestly robes and he tore them, clean forgetting he had pronounced a death sentence upon himself because Moses had said the chief priest must never, ever, ever tear his robe because he represents the perfect sacrifice, the paschal lamb. And it had to go as an unbroken sacrifice. You know, that was, that marked the end of the era of the priests. Two tearings were to happen in one day. This was one of the three perhaps most significant days in the history of this universe. Later in the day, the temple curtain was to be ripped. And it was a symbol that a divorce had taken place between God and his chosen people. 
And just a few days before, Christ had seen the city of Jerusalem and he'd wept. He said, like a, a hen who gathers her chickens, I would have done this for you. But it was too late. You know, there's so much symbolism in the, in the Bible that you cannot read it and read it prayerfully without being convinced of its truth. Christ had come in born as a baby. Do you realize that as people prepared for the Passover, in the days beforehand, they would buy a lamb. They would examine it very, very carefully to make sure it had no blemish. Then they would take it. You know what they would do quite often? They would wrap it very carefully in swaddling clothes because they did not want to take the risk that it might break a bone before it was taken to the priest. And when they took that lamb to the priest, because its, its blood was to be shed and the priest would know the significance of the occasion that it represented the, the, the redeemer who was to come, he would say to the owner of the lamb, do you love this lamb? The owner would say yes. He would say again, do you love this lamb? He would say yes. Do you love this lamb? Three times. Wow. Didn't Christ say that three times to Peter? And here the son of man the God of the universe stood before Caiaphas. In November 1990, a phone rang one afternoon in the office of Zevi Greenhut, a renowned archaeologist. And they said, you'd better come over here to where we're building a new peace park just underneath the walls of the city. There's something you should see. And he went over. And this is what he saw. It was a cave. It was a burial cave, and he crawled in. This is the actual cave. And he found a number of chambers. And inside were ossuary boxes. Now, an ossuary box is a practice that only lasted in Israel for a hundred years and it was over this period of time when a person died because the Mount of Olives was filling up with, grave, with graves they couldn't fit them in instead of a full-size coffin when the body had decomposed they would place the bones in a box stone box and they were called ossuary boxes and he saw this box and I don't know how clearly you can see it, but at one end you can see an inscription. And what really amazed him was the inscription that he read. Yosefa ben Caiaphas. They had found the bones of Caiaphas. You know, the Orthodox Jews have released the Oshiri box, and it's now in the Hebrew Museum, they took the bones and secretly hid them and buried them on the Mount of Olives so no one could find them. But let me tell you, folks, those bones will rattle one day and Caiaphas will once again look into the face 
of Jesus Christ. You know, the seamless robe that Christ wore compared to the gorgeous robes of Caiaphas, I wonder who made it. Was it made by someone who was once blind? Was it made by somebody whose fingers had once disappeared through leprosy? Was it made by somebody who had been dead? But at Christ, even in his death, the heathen soldiers recognized that it was too good to cut up into pieces. And in fulfillment of prophecy, it was cast by lot and given to one of them. Have you ever thought of the similarities between the seamless robe of Christ and the plan of salvation? No weak spot in the plan of salvation. We're told that when Christ, the Holy Spirit and his Father met, when man first sinned, and they came up with a plan of salvation, it must have blown Satan away. Because there were no loopholes in the seamless robe of Christ, and there were no loopholes in the plan of salvation. There is nothing hidden, no pockets. Politicians can't wear a seamless robe. Poor old Queensland, brand new government, within a fortnight, a minister is gone. But Christ's plan of salvation was just so perfect, so seamless, so all-encompassing, just absolutely amazing. It is the plan of salvation that just changes red to white, the blood is washed away, darkness to daylight, hopelessness to salvation. I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. And there are some gorgeous words here. I'm reading from chapter 7. And verse 11. I'll go back. Verse 9. After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will never be able to forget during eternity who the Paschal Lamb really was. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And then one of the elders asked me, referring to John the Revelator, these white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? John replied, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over, him, over them. Never again will they thirst and hunger. 
The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you say amen? Absolutely. That's an absolutely wow text. I cannot find an adequate story sort of to finish this all off because it would appear somewhat trite after hearing words like that. Praise God. We have the opportunity to be in that crowd, to cast our, our crowns at his feet. During the week, on Tuesday night, I think it was, we talked about the um, demoniac on the beach at Gadara, the madman, who when he ran down to Christ and he had thousands of devils in him, he was forced to call God by his correct name. And uh, after that, Coralie Fraser went home and uh, she wrote some words. And then she put a tune to it. I wish I had that sort of talent. Every time I compose a tune, it always ends up sounding like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But, <laughs> but Coralie, you've got to be very proud of your daughter, by the way. She's been my right arm right through the week. I thank you so much for that song. The music is beautiful, but the words are incredible. Dear Father and God, Jehovah Adonai, we've talked this week about fusion. It's just incredible that the God of the universe would come down and connect with us, the sewage of the universe, the victims of sin, and your seamless robe of righteousness covers all of us. And we just say simply, thank you, Jesus. We love you. We look forward to the day when we can look you in the face and thank you personally. We just pray that you will keep us true and faithful to them. In your name, amen.